Was happening, world? I'm your host, the Wizard of Waz, Benji Wozniak, and today we'll be doing a show on my home city of Lynn, Massachusetts. If you're from this area, then you've heard the poem about my city, which has become its anthem and to some its curse. If you haven't heard the poem, it goes like this. Lynn, Lynn, the city of sin, you never come out the way you went in. You ask for water, but they give you gin. The girls say no, yet they all you're not bad. They, they won't let you in. It's the damnedest city I've ever lived in. Lin Lin, the city of sin, you never come out the way you went in. Doesn't really picture a good place to be, but it's a great place to grow up. And I'm going to show you this, like all the history and exciting things that have ever happened in Lin. So here we go. Nearly 350 years ago, some settlers from nearby Salem wanted to find a less crowded area with greener pastures. They bargained with the Indians for some land known as Saugus the place where the local Indian chiefs, the Sagamores, lived. This land originally included what are now the separate towns of Swampskit, Nahant, Saugus, and Linfield. In 1630, that land was incorporated as the town of Saugus, one year after it was founded, when the first official minister, Samuel Whiting, arrived from King's Lynn, England. The new settlers were so excited that they changed the name of their community to Lynn. In 1637, in honor of him, Mostly an agricultural community, Lynn's people were skilled in making leather shoes that were used to purchase the necessities of life. A Quaker named Ebenezer Breed persuaded some Europeans to settle in Lynn to make the town an important shoe center of the New World. Breed was also successful in convincing Congress to place a protective tariff on the shoes made in Lynn, which helped them make the, the town the ladies' shoe center of the world. On a side note, the creation of sneakers ruined the shoe industry. <laughs> and put all those companies out of business here in Lynn. Also, I went to Breed Junior High, named after the man, and I had no clue where the name came from or the history of Lynn until I did this podcast. The first thing I'm going to talk about is a singing group that lived in the 1840s called the Hutchinson Family Singers. They became the most popular American entertainers of that time. The group sang in four-part harmony, a repertoire of political, social, comic, sentimental, and dramatic works, and are considered by many to be the first uniquely American popular music performers. At the urging of Jess Hutchinson, the group took up various causes. Among these were abolitionism, temperance, and women's rights. In December 1842, John Hutchinson signed a petition affiliated with an abolitionist rally in Milford. By the following year, the Hutchinsons had become vocally abolitionist. Asa Hutchinson wrote, about this time, 1843, an anti-slavery convention was held in Milford, attended by W.M. Lloyd Garrison. The custom at once enlisted the sympathies of the young men. Accustomed to roam at freedom among their own hills, they abhorred slavery and pitied the slave. More than this, they nobly resolved to ex exert their influence on behalf of the captives. To this end, they prepared and sang anti-slavery songs. Okay, side note. So for me as a child, my family and I lived on Quincy Terrace and I hung around Rogers Ave. At the top of Rogers Ave, there's a large rock face. My friends and I used to climb it and have uh, adventures. There was a square red brick area that we used to use as a fort, and we used to have sticks and pretend we were fighting off enemies. That was where the Hutchinson house was located. What we were actually playing in was the fireplace, the remaining of it. The house must have been torn down years, years before that. It was pretty cool back then, you know, just playing around, but knowing now the history behind where we were and all the people that actually visited that location, all the famous people at that time to come see those people sing, makes it even more fun. 
Now that rock face I mentioned leads up to High Rock Tower. Before English settlement, High Rock was known to be a Pawtucket Indian meeting place, and a great chief named Nanafazmit, hope I said that right, once made his headquarters there. The modern history of High Rock is the story of its association with the Hutchinson family. Family leader Jess Hutchinson bought the land at High Rock, and by 1846, he had erected a famous stone cottage for his family. Other cottages were later added, as well as a tower at the summit. This first tower actually burned down during the Civil War. At the end of the Civil War, they had a party, and during that time, it caught on fire. Now, the Hutchinsons loved High Rock, and its view from, and they wrote songs about this. And one of the songs goes like this. In the state of Massachusetts, in the good old town of Lynn, there's a famous range of ledges as eyes have ever seen. 200 feet the highest point moves up this rugged block, and it's known throughout New England as Old High Rock. And here the tribe of Jess sang and made the people talk of the friends of right of progress at Old High Rock. Now in 1904, in response to a civic movement to acquire High Rock from the, for the city, aging family leader John W. Hutchinson gave the family land, including the summit, to Lynn. In return, the city agreed to build a tower to replace the first tower, which again had accidentally burned down. The new tower and its astronomical observatory were completed in 1906. Now, I have to say, if you actually go to High Rock and look out from it, it is absolutely beautiful. And if you're lucky enough to go when the tower is open, you can go up to the very top and look out onto Boston and the surrounding areas. It's breathtaking. There is a stone staircase that leads up to High Rock. But it is really, really long. And unless you have a lot of energy, it's going to take you a few minutes to get up it. You're not going to run up those stairs. There is a parking space that you can actually go to and pull in and park there. It's only a few feet away from the tower. Uh, there's picnic tables and a place that you can actually have a picnic and relax with your family and just enjoy the view. Now, the second place I'm going to talk about and recommend you visit is Linwood's. It was founded in 1881 and is the second largest municipal park in the United States. With 30 miles of trails through diverse forests, wetlands, ponds, and streams, it is especially beautiful during the fall and is home to the legendary Dungeon Rock. So this story begins before that 1638 earthquake that rocked New England. People saw a small bark anchoring near the mouth of the Saugus River in the Lynn Mass. Four pirates lowered a boat and rowed up the river, where it entered deep into the woods. The men then landed the craft and made their way ashore carrying a chest. A crowd of onlookers witnessed the men, and the next day, they went exploring to see if they could find them. Instead, they found a note. The note said, If a quantity of manacles, digging tools, chains, and other supplies were brought from the nearby Saugus Ironworks and left in the woods, the pirates would pay a quantity of silver for them. The men returned the following day and filled the order for the tools, and a day later, they went and retrieved their silver. The area where the exchange took place became known as Pirate's Glen. Later, the four men returned. One came with his bride and built a small house and set up housekeeping. In the coming months, the woman perished from a fever and was buried on the land that they had, they had built the house on. Eventually, authorities found out about the pirate's hideout and raided them. They arrested three of the four and returned them to England for prosecution. The fourth disappeared deeper into the woods. That fourth pirate was named Thomas Seville himself in the cave him and his friends had excavated. Neil rarely came to town, only for food. He basically lived in the cave all the time. It was here that he was living when the earthquake struck in 1638. Now the foundation under the cave split open and his cave tumbled in upon him, forever sealing him in what is now known as Dungeon Rock. Despite efforts to uncover his grave, and his treasure of course, he would rest in peace for almost 200 years. 
Then in 1852, a man named Hiram Marble bought the Dungeon Rock. Marble became obsessed with the treasure and even believed that Veal's ghost was speaking to him, telling him where to dig. And for 30 years, he and his son excavated the rock bit by bit, trying to find Veal's treasure. Marble actually built a house near the cave, and some remnants of Marble's house can still be seen, including a couple of cellar holes and a fragment of wall. Now, near the fragment of wall is a large pink rock that marks the actual spot where Marble is buried. Now, I used to take field trips in elementary school to Dungeon Rock, and you definitely need to bring a flashlight. There are some stairs that lead down from the steel door at the top. They're wooden, and at the bottom, it's just like a big pool of water, and you can see where the actual cave-in came down. But I definitely bring a flashlight if I was you. And uh, outside of the cave, there's these rocks that are small. You have to, it's like called the lemon squeeze. Because as a young kid, kid, we tried to squeeze through them. And, you know, it was fun back then. But, you know, as an adult, there's no way I could fit through that. Now, after your adventure at Dungeon Rock, you can go down and see the wolf pits. On the north side of the Walden Pond, there are two rectangular stone-lined pits. They are two feet wide and five feet long. The first is seven feet deep, and the second nearly five foot deep, and they lie 20 feet apart. There has been considerable debate as to the original function of the pits. If you are to believe what people say, they are wolf traps, then some question must be answered. Were there wolves in Lynn Woods, and was there any need to go to the trouble of building elaborate traps to catch them? Or are they actually the remains of some other structure? Was trapping with pits a common use method for killing? Or do we need to believe that this practice was just unique to Lynn? Perhaps you can come see for yourself and try and figure out the mystery behind the pits. Now, as you're walking through Lynn Woods, you can also visit Stone Tower. It's a 48-foot tall field stone tower on the top of Burrow Hill. It was constructed in 1936 under the auspices of the Works Progress Administration. Built for fire observation, the tower had a wooden roof structure constructed on its top to provide shelter for the crew that would remain there. The roof is actually no longer there, it went away with time, but the tower is still there and it's set on the highest point in Lynn and it's got an impressive view of the Lynn waterfront, Boston and beyond. And you can also visit, if you're in this area, the Lynn Woods Rose Gardens. In the 1920s, Lynn Park Superintendent John P. Morrissey created these gardens. One of the loveliest public gardens in the city of Lynn's history, it contains many rose, annual and perennial beds. The garden also includes rustic arbors, trestles, and extensive planting of azaleas, rhododendrons, and other exotic woodland species. Now, if you like history, near the woods in Peabody, there's a mystery, a rock that's called Cannon Rock. It's named because during the Revolutionary War, it was mistaken for a cannon. It is perched on three small stones on the edge of a cliff. Now, in the 19th century, it was considered evidence of Viking settlements in the area. In the 20th century, it has been considered evidence of Phoenician and Druid settlements and thought to be an, a dolmen or an altar. Some believe it was formed from the Ice Age. Now, you can go and see it and make your own decisions on it, but anything that predating man would actually be pretty cool to see. Now, I'm going to tell you about Pine Grove Cemetery. It was originally established in 1849 with a design by Henry A.S. Dearborn noted designer of Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge, Mass. It was purchased by the city of Lynn in 1855. Now, in 1930, a wall was built by the WPA to surround the cemetery. And according to Ripley's Believe It or Not, it is the second largest contiguous wall in the world, second only to the Great Wall of China. 
See, it's pretty cool to have all this stuff in your city and you don't even know about it. You have to do podcasts to find out. Now, here's some stuff I'm going to just do a quick little notes on about Lynn before I get into other stories. In 1629, the first tannery in the United States began operations in Lynn. In 1847, Lynn astronomer Maria Mitchell was the first woman inducted into the Academy of Arts and Sciences. Now, in 1975, Lydia Pinkham of Lynn was the first woman to use her image to sell a product, the Lydia Pinkham Vegetable Compound. 1888, the first electrical trolley in the United States ran from Lynn. Then, in 1892, the Lynn-based Thomas Houston Electric Company merged with the Edison General Electric Company to form the General Electric Company, which is still located in Lynn today. Now, in 1920, local candy company Durkee Mauer bought the recipe for fluff, and the factory is also located in Lynn still. So whenever you're having one of those peanut butter and delicious marshmallow fluff sandwiches, this note comes from this city right here, Lynn, Massachusetts. And in 1942, the first jet airplane engine in the U.S. was built in Lynn's General Electric plant. On a side note, on June 24, 1927, Lynn was the first place to host a night baseball game. The General Electric Athletic Field was, the, was where it was played, and Lynn lost 7-2 to, to, to Salem. The General Electric was testing wattage lamps that would allow railroad yards to stay open all night. You can further learn about the stuff I briefly touched upon on Google or contact the Lynn Historical Society. Now I'm going to talk about stories I feel are very interesting and need some more detail. First, we all know about the Salem witches and the famous trials that they had. But Lynn had its own famous witch, a clairvoyant and fortune teller named Maul Pitcher. A writer named John Greenleaf Witter, also a native of Massachusetts, wrote a 900-line poem about her. It reads like this. She stood upon a bare tall crag, which overlooked her rugged cot, a wasted gray and meager hag, and featured evil as her lot. She had the crooked nose of a witch and a crooked hook back and chin, and in her gait she had a hitch, and in her hand she carried a switch to aid her work of sin. Now, people that knew her, however, described her as a plain, not beautiful, but not a hag or binary in any appearance, to be honest. Later in life, even Witter grew to dislike the poem. Now, there's an old cemetery at the end of Lynn Commons. Many of the stones are so old that the writing's gone. This is where I believe she's buried. I'm not positive, but I'm almost 100% sure. Now, we're going to go back for the next part to the Hutchinson family. So... In 1853, they gave former Universalist minister and spiritualist John Murray Spear permission to use their woodshed to construct an electrical machine that would revolutionize life and to be a, a new messiah, the God machine as it came to be known, heaven's last best gift to man. Spear actually chose High Rock because of its supernatural reputation. Now, a pregnant woman only known as New Mary, lay down in front of the completed machine while in labor. When she got up and touched the machine, Spear claimed it moved, animated by the power, the new motive power. Nothing came from this, and the hype eventually died down, and Spears moved, moved the God machine to Rochester, New York, where it was destroyed by an angry crowd. So for me, this adds to the mystery and mystique of Hot Rock. It's just a, a must place to visit. Now, moving on, in these modern times... We're dealing with people upset over the immigration of Latinos into America, saying they're stealing our jobs and regulations need to be put in place 
for this to discontinue. This isn't the first time in American history that this has occurred. The 1800s, it was the Chinese immigration and all the issues were raised the same that was going on now. During the 1880 election, a letter that supposedly came from presidential candidate James Garfield was published in The Truth, a newspaper out of New York. It would be known as the Moray Letter because it was addressed to Henry Lee Moray, a politician who lived in Lynn, and stated, individuals and companies have the right to buy labor where they can get it cheapest. And it went on to touch upon the treaty with China and should stay in effect until the end of America's manufacturing needs were fulfilled from the cheap labor. Now, Lynn Mass became the focal point of a huge political scandal, and numerous government agents were sent to Lynn to investigate. Garfield was asked to write a second letter to match the handwriting, and when put side by side with the Moray letter, it was deemed a forgery and a cheap ploy to sway voters against Garfield. Yet many still question if it was truly a forgery or not, because it was written on official House of Representatives stationery. There's tons of information on the Maury letter, and I encourage you to read more about this scandal as it mirrors what we're dealing with in this country today. So now, as a person born and raised in Massachusetts, I am a diehard Boston sports fan. So I was shocked to learn that the Boston Red Sox had a Class B farm team called the Lynn Red Sox from 1946 to 1948 at Fraser Field. This team actually was the first place team in the division those three years that they were there. They didn't win the championship, but they were there all three years with a winning record. Now, we still have baseball teams at Fraser Field, and there's been numerous teams over the years. Right now, it's the North Shore Navigators, which play in a, a Futures Collegiate Baseball League. And if you can get tickets and see it, it's actually pretty fun, and uh, it'd be a good time for the family. But I really wish the Red Sox would put another farm team in Lynn. Now, during the 1960s, there was a string of women murders and the killer became known as the Boston Strangler. One victim, Helen Blake, 65-year-old, lived at 73 Newhall Street in Lynn. Later on, Albert DeSalvo of Malden was arrested for breaking and entering and eventually confessed to being the murderer known as the Boston Strangler. DeSalvo was sentenced to life in prison in 1967. Now, in February of that same year, he escaped with two fellow inmates from the Bridgewater State Hospital, triggering a full-scale manhunt. Three days after the escape, he called his lawyer, the famous F. Lee Bailey, to turn himself in. Bailey sent the police to re-arrest DeSalvo in Lynn Mass, where DeSalvo was sitting calmly, drinking a coffee, while the police arrived. Isn't that crazy? A man murdered all these people, and he knows he's going back to prison, and he can just sit calmly and wait for the police to come get him. It's kind of creepy. Like any other town or city, we have ghost stories. And here's a couple that stand out to me. First is the Fox Hill Bridge ghost. Now, on February 27, 1879, the mutilated body of a young woman was found in a trunk floating in the Saugus River near Fox Hill Bridge, which is now the Route 107 bridge between Lynn and Saugus. Now, this girl died as a result of an abortion, which at the time was illegal to be performed in Lynn. Now, it took months to arrest the perpetrators. Eventually, two doctors were convicted of this murder. Since then, there's been reported appearances over the years of a ghostly figure which has terrified residents and passengers in the spot where the trunk was found. The apparition is described as a woman of small stature, clothed only in a white chemsey, and walking in bare feet. Now, okay, here's something that I need to share. When I was younger, me and my friends were coming back from Revere, and we, we were drunk really bad. And I was in the backseat on the little hump, nodding, 
barely being awake. And as I looked up, I screamed, Mike, don't hit the girl on the road. He swerved, slammed on the brakes, and everybody in the car lost their mind on me, didn't know what I was talking about. Now, I understand. It was a ghost. Not just any ghost, this ghost, which is actually kind of creepy. So I'm actually going to send this to my friends that were in the car that day because everybody thought I was just being a, a, a weirdo, and in fact, I was saw a ghost. The next story is about Julia F. Callahan Elementary. The school opened in 1952, the same year Callahan died. Rumors surfaced that Callahan was roaming the hallways, keeping an eye on the children learning in her classrooms. Now, the evidence is there. There's doors slamming in the library, windows whistle in the wind. The popular idea is that a bookcase fell and killed Miss Callahan. For me, I attended Carver Elementary as a child, but I can honestly see how attending Callahan Elementary would be pretty cool. I mean... There's a ghost. And what more can you ask for as a kid to go to a school that's haunted by a ghost? And finally, we go back to Lynn Woods. The same beautiful place during the day is a spirited, haunted place at night. Legend has it that if you walk through the woods, you hear voices and hear the breaking of sticks next to you. The woods are completely dark, so you might want to bring a flashlight and a friend, of course. There is a tree that looks just like a man was sucked into it tree appears to have an arm and a face that can be visible on the side. Very, very creepy stuff. Lynn is also host to numerous musical acts, comedians, and family-friendly entertainment at the Lynn Memorial Auditorium, so please visit their website to see who's performing and how to obtain tickets. You can also visit downtown Lynn to see all the murals painted on the buildings for our Beyond the Wall Festival. And be sure to see who's performing at the Red Rock during the summer concert event series. And enjoy some free music and a nice day at the beach. Special thanks to Patrick Gibb, my technical consulting on this, and Jamie Allen, who did the artwork for Was Happening. He will be opening his own business soon called Democrates. Once I get more information, I'll be handing it out to you. If you're in need of music for your party, marriage, restaurant, or bar, please contact my good friend DJ Lee Wilson. And his contact info is Lee at djleewilson.com, 781-799-6458. As for me, I'll be doing a walk for the Jimmy Fund coming up soon. And if you'd like to donate to this, please go to danafarber.jimmyfund.org slash go to slash Sharon. So please tune in next week to find out what's happening.